Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of the greatest podcast in American history, aka Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America. My name is Dylan Shear. I'm your host for this podcast, our little tour of post-Civil War American history. Today we'll be talking, we'll be doing the first of our two uh, podcasts on World War II, sort of the same vibe, same structure as the uh, two-part series on World War One. First, we'll be looking at sort of the war abroad, right? Most of the fighting, all the fighting took place outside of the United States, basically, except for one big specific incident. Um, and then we'll be, the next episode, we'll be looking more at how the U.S. dealt with World War II at home. So, uh, a couple things we're covering here today. First, uh, I would look at the causes of World War II, right? So, why? it happened. Uh, We'll look at the United States entry into war. So how did the U.S. actually get involved? Uh, The collapse of German power and then American forces abroad, right? Looking at how U.S. forces uh, interacted and worked with uh, their European allies. So one thing to note, again, once in these sort of war, more war-focused podcasts, I don't do the, I don't go into like the battles. I don't, you know, go into formations and stuff, especially for World War II. There is plenty, plenty, plenty of information about all that out there. I'm not you know talk about the developments in various you know artillery formations and stuff like that tank usage but if you need that and you want to be a World War II dad go ahead feel free uh, there are a plethora a plethora of uh, books and information about that out there okay um, so some major questions this podcast is going to get into. Uh, were World War One and World War Two sort of part of the same conflict, right? I mentioned this, sort of previewed this in the World War One podcast, that that is a sort of major point of contention a lot of historians make, that it's makes a lot of sense to sort of see World War One and World War Two as almost the same conflict with just sort of a 20-year interregnum. Uh, and so we'll look more closely at that question. Um, we'll answer, look at the question, how did American foreign policy change as a result of World War Two? right? We saw a America coming out of World War One, a changed country, especially with regards to foreign policy. Uh, and then we'll also finally look at what did fighting look like in World War Two, right? What did the actual sort of, you know, boots on the ground stuff look like is very different than the trench warfare of World War One. Uh, Before we get in, we actually have two little character biographies today, Um, looking at some people uh, about World War II, looking at two people who opposed, who would oppose entry into World War II, but on very different grounds. So the first person is Elizabeth Dilling. Uh, Elizabeth Dilling was a notorious anti-Semite, anti-communist of the 1930s and 40s, and I don't mean she was just some random lady, Uh, she was very popular. She opposed U.S. entry into World War II on the grounds that fascists controlling Europe, uh, you know, specifically the Nazis and the Italians, uh, would be better for white people as a whole, right? So saying that we shouldn't fight them, in fact, we should embrace that sort of fascist ideology. She wrote a book called The Red Network, a who's who uh, and handbook for radicalism for patriots, which was, uh, you know, listed supposed communists across the U.S. Uh, She supposedly went on a tour of Soviet Russia to, you know, help get this information. Among the, the sort of groups and people that this book singled out as supposedly subversive, oh, 
as supposedly subversive uh, and, you know, therefore dangerous to American liberty, quote unquote, and Dilling, you know, Dilling type language. Uh, she listed a lot of labor unions, uh, federations like the AFL, various women's groups, Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Senator Robert M. La Follette, Gandhi, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, and Clarence Darrow. For her, sort of the New Deal was very much a communist conspiracy. This book uh, that sort of made her popular, this Red Network book, The Ku Klux Klan uh, and the German-American Bund, both uh, assisted with sales and distribution of this book, uh, and officials from the Daughters of the American Revolution and the American Legion uh, very much endorsed this work, right? So this sort of embrace of this hard right-wing fascism was not uh, sort of a kooky, out-there part of American politics, especially at this moment. Uh, Dilling also became involved in something called the Mother's Movement, which is this far-right isolationist group. I'm saying, you know, trying to put a nice veneer on saying the U.S. shouldn't enter into war. Eventually, Dilling was tried for sedition, uh, you know, sort of treason, uh, sedition in the Great Sedition Trial of 1944. Uh, She was not found guilty. That trial ended in a mistrial. Uh, But Dilling, so sort of the face of this sort of pro-fascist movement in the United States, something we'll talk about. The other, another person uh, representing a group here opposing entry into war uh, from a sort of a far different side than Dilling uh, was someone like Marvin Hine. Uh, he was a leader of the American Mennonite Brethren, uh, served as a conscientious objector during World War II. Uh, conscious objectors, a lot of times, um, were sort of forced to serve as a, a basically human guinea pigs in medical uh, studies. Uh, they were treated with derision, uh, several cases, uh, outright violence, right? They were beaten up for their beliefs. Marvin Hine, uh, sort of as part of this, uh, you know, American Mennonite Brethren, uh, was a very much a, a pacifist, right? Sort of this idea that you should use, never use violence at all, and thus his sort of opposition to uh, entering into war. So these sort of two very different ideologies here, people opposing war, right? And I just bring these people up because a lot of times when we talk about World War II, especially in history classes, uh, it's sort of presented as if everyone in America was fully on sort of, you know, this anti-fascist pro-liberty tour right away uh, that everyone, you know, wanted to defeat the Germans and that everyone was very much pro the U.S. entering the war uh, from the get-go and that just was very much not the case. Uh, so, okay, looking at how World War II begins, right? Uh, all these wars have a starting place. So as we uh, will go back a little bit here uh, and go outside of Europe for a second, uh, tensions between China and Japan uh, have been rising in the 1930s. Both uh, were sort of undergoing expansion, the sort of imperial-led expansion of their territories, right? Trying to sort of, you know, expand territories. This territorial expansion, right? They were gaining more and more ground. Um, the 1930s also saw a renewed talk of war in Europe. You see the rise of fascist dictators in Japan, in Italy, and in Germany, uh, as well as just the rise of militarism across Europe as a whole, regardless of whether or not uh, your country was turning fascist, right? This increased military sort of production, increase uh, in threatening of arms, and then also just sort of addition of soldiers, right? So all that sort of causing tensions to rise, right? Sort of boiling, boiling, boiling. Uh, Hasn't boiled over yet, but sort of the heat is rising, to quote Bain. Um, This would soon 
these tensions, right, would soon boil over into the bloodiest war the world has ever seen uh, and the detonation of two nuclear weapons, uh, the first time uh, and only time so far that nuclear weapons have been used in war. Uh, world War II did not end all wars, as some people promised that it would, uh, but it did reshape the world uh, in a very, very destructive manner. So as we talked about with the Great Depression, right, the collapse of the stock market uh, between 1929 and 1932 didn't just destroy the economy of the United States. It also destroyed the economies of much of Europe. There were communist uprisings in both of these countries, uh, met with varying different levels of success, uh, usually fighting these more nationalist, more conservative forces wanting to push back the communists. Germany was hit hardest by this economic depression of uh, sort of all the countries, right? Talked about how they had owed all this money after the Treaty of Versailles uh, to countries like France and the UK. Germany itself had basically lost all ability to produce goods for a time being, right? So many of their uh, working men uh, had been killed, and they didn't have enough women to sort of make up that workforce. So Germany saw sort of massive decreases in manufacturing power, huge amounts of political chaos, right? The government that was in control just didn't really have the respect of anybody or the ability to change into this sort of power gap. And we're sort of skipping over a lot here, right? The sort of the rise of Hitler is a much longer story than the one I'm about to tell. But sort of we'll just go through it pretty quickly. Uh, Hitler and sort of the his nationalist socialist, national socialist Nazi party took advantage of those political and economic weaknesses. Uh, as well as sort of large amounts of public support, right? It wasn't that they were just coming in and sort of running a coup by themselves. They did have lots of, uh, of national support to take office. And just a clarifying point here, sort of often to make this point, uh, just because they're called the National Socialist Party does not make them sort of socialists. For a second there, there was a guy who was uh, somewhat high up in the party who was sort of this socialists who thought that they could use fascist ideas to bring socialism. He was quickly drummed out of the party after sort of getting that in the name, uh, and they never sort of looked back on that idea again, just to, to be clear on that. Um, so after sort of Hitler uh, took a lot of took advantage of these sort of uh, economic weaknesses and political weaknesses to get people elected into office, uh, they staged a violent coup, uh, holding sort of power for themselves, and immediately began a massive rearmament campaign of Germany. So this meant that uh, after the Treaty of Versailles, there were sort of some conditions that Germany couldn't really have its own army, um, at least in the way that, you know, it would be an effective one. Uh, Hitler said, that, you know, screw that. We're going to build our own army again. Uh, you know, specifically the big one of his calling points was about like the, the nastiness of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, this rearmament campaign ended the depression in Germany. Uh, basically through massive amounts of military and infrastructure spending. Similar to uh, Hitler, Benito Mussolini in Italy was also doing uh, similar infrastructure programs 
uh, taking power there through coups as well. Both Hitler and Mussolini were fascist, seeking uh, sort of ultimate control over their countries. The only person in power, right, getting rid of all sort of semblances of, of any sort of democracy. Both were expansionist, right, dreaming of world empires. Hitler specifically talked of a Third Reich where, you know, sort of Germany would rule the world for like a thousand years sort of thing. Hitler also like virulently anti-Semitic, uh, blaming Germany and the world's problems on the Jewish people, violently repressing anybody uh outside of like the bounds of quote unquote normal behavior. This meant sort of uh, anybody wasn't like sort of an Anglo-Saxon, right? Sort of Jewish people, uh, gay people, LGBT people, uh, everyone sort of who wasn't considered quote unquote normal by Hitler uh, faced violent, violent repercussions. Uh, And we'll talk about sort of the Holocaust in this as well. One of the most just evil, evil things ever happened in the world. Uh, Both Hitler and Mussolini found supporters uh, not not just in their own countries, but around the globe, right? And we'll talk about that because that even happened in the United States as well. Um, So almost immediately after coming to power, as I mentioned, Hitler began violating the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, right? This sort of massively, massively harsh treaty that ended World War I. Uh, 1936, he occupied the Rhineland, as sort of this huge center of industry, right, wanting to get uh, Germany's industry back on track. In 1938, annexed Austria, claiming that uh, he had the right to do that because most of the residents spoke German, uh, therefore they belong in Germany. Mussolini also undergoing this territorial expansion as well, invading Ethiopia in 1935, Albania in 1939, right? Trying to, you know, add more colonies uh, and more territory to Italy as well. Uh, And lots of times people in their own countries very much supported this. Uh, In addition to Hitler's expansionist policies, Hitler also became a began a campaign of terror against his own people, specifically uh, the Jewish people, communists, uh, gay people, the Roma, and other groups he decried as sort of un-German, quote-unquote. This sort this marked the beginning of the Holocaust. While the extent of horrors uh, sort of being committed to these people, right, uh, just massive attacks, and then also the beginning of the work camps and eventually the, the sort of death camps, while the extent of that horror was not widely known, uh, especially at the beginning, reports did begin to spread soon after they began of sort of the atrocities of people being committed under Hitler's command, right? People were escaping. They had heard about these things and word did start to spread, was starting to spread of all these horrors that was going on in Germany. There was also the rise of fascism in Asia as well. Uh, the Japanese emperor at the time, Hirohito, wanted to bring sort of all of Asia under his control, just like German, uh, Hitler was trying to, you know, bring Europe under his control. On 1931, Hirohito and the Japanese forces occupied Manchuria. Uh, they ignored sort of the League of Nations and the United States demands to stop, right? They said, we don't have to listen to you. Uh, you don't control us. In 1937, uh, Hirohito attempted this sort of full-scale invasion of China. Uh, they made some early gains, but by 1940, sort of fighting was at a stalemate between uh, the U.S. Sorry, between uh, Japan and China. Sort of like some of the reactions to this rise of fascism, right? This all this stuff wasn't happening. The annexing of Austria and stuff didn't go unnoticed by the rest of the world. Uh, so look at Britain and France. Both of them uh, refrained from immediate action against Germany and Italy. Right? Many in power still remembered the devastations of World War One, the loss of all those lives. 
Uh, but it wasn't just that. Some people also supported the rise of fascism in these countries, people in powerful positions, uh, and agreed with the politics of Hitler and Mussolini, right? People were still very, very racist in countries that weren't fascist, uh, and they may not have gone the full way that Hitler did, but that didn't mean they didn't support them. And you definitely get that in France and Britain as well. Uh, In 1938, the Munich Agreement uh, allowed Hitler to annex parts of Czechoslovakia, sort of hoping that he would not continue his expansionist policies, right? Saying, we will give you this if you stop. Uh, Hitler obviously would not stop and had no plans of stopping, uh, but sort of was content to keep people out of of a full-fledged war for now. Uh, Obviously, sort of, once again, this colonial uh, sort of idea, right, that they can just, Britain and France can just decide to give up Czechoslovakia to Germany, right? That that sort of idea would actually make any sense to anybody, um, but those sort of countries remains true to this day. Uh, Throughout this time, the U.S. remained largely isolationist on the side, right, not picking sides or supporting either group. The Soviet Union also had reactions to this rise of fascism, despite sort of the British and French hope that there would be peace in our time, quote-unquote. Hitler continued his expansion even after getting Czechoslovakia. Uh, in March 1939, Hitler moved uh, actually armies into Czech- Czechoslovakia more than the territory he had gained uh, then to annex the German-speaking parts of Poland, right? So continuing this expansion, getting closer and closer to the Soviet Union. France and Britain tried to create an alliance with Joseph Stalin and the USSR, right? Hopefully to make uh, Hitler back off, right? So they wouldn't have to fight a two-front war. Stalin resisted this alliance. And in 1939, he agreed to a secret non-aggression pact with Hitler that divided Poland between their sort of respective countries called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Uh, This is sort of very much a blunder, right? Uh, Hitler had no intention of actually sort of keeping with this. Uh, wouldn't want to divide Poland between another country, right? Wanted it all for himself. But for the time, it kept the Soviet Union out of war. Some reactions in the U.S. to all of this. Most Americans did not want to enter another war. Um, they remembered World War One, right? Even though U.S. troops hadn't fought in it, they remembered all the changes it had caused and did not want to enter sort of send their boys over again, right, to this war on a country that was far away. Most people had not even been to. The Great Depression was still ongoing. People had bigger problems at home. You also get lots of support for Hitler in the United States. Uh, There's a famous picture here uh, of a senator, Burton K. Wheeler, uh, the famous, you know, air aviator, a famous pilot, Charles Lindbergh, and then a famous at the time novelist and newspaper columnist, Kathleen Norris, uh, Heiling Hitler, right? All sort of doing that, the famous Nazi salute uh, in support of fascism in the United States. So these very famous, you know, senators doing this, right? Uh, support for Hitler was all throughout the United States. Not just support for Hitler, right, but anti-Semitism virulent throughout the United States during this time as well. Ku Klux Klan was still a pretty powerful organization, right, coming out of the 20s and into the 30s. Um, So anti-Semitism was everywhere in the United States during this time as well. Uh, But the U.S. did not stay completely out of this fight, could not really. It was so intertwined into the world economy, even after the Great Depression, still a huge part of the world economy. Uh, The U.S., uh, starting in 1937, would provide arms and munitions to France, China, the U.K., and the Soviet Union, right? So pretty early picking sides, not providing weapons to Germany or Italy, unlike in World War I, where they had early on provided weapons to uh, both sides of the war. As a result of this increased militarism in in Europe, 
Uh, the U.S. also sort of began to increase its own military production. Uh, and that rapid increase, right, just for their own purposes and to sell to other countries, is really what ended the Great Depression. Massive amounts of military spending, uh, sort of the increased number of jobs is what actually brought the U.S. out of the Great Depression, uh, sort of not that early New Deal spending. Uh, FDR believed that U.S. arms and manufacturing power could be used to defeat Germany without the U.S. needing to go to war. Right, he thought that they could just build all this stuff for these other countries, and that way those other countries could win the war without really a significant loss of U.S. lives. Uh, FDR also requested that the authority to build 50,000 warplanes. Right, this World War II would be one of the first wars fought uh, with massive, massive air forces, right, with the invention of the plane and its ability to be used in war. Uh, the U.S. was still officially neutral at this point, had not entered the war. But the sort of Germany upped its war efforts in the 1940s. In the spring of 1940, Germany launched a series of quote-unquote blitzkrieg attacks, this sort of lightning war idea, uh, using sort of new tank technology that allowed troops to move very fast and very quickly. Uh, German forces went through Denmark, Norway, Belgium, and the Netherlands in April and May 1940, right? That's a huge amount of territory. Uh, gone through in a very short amount of time, whereas unlike, you know, World War One, they were fighting for years over, you know, a few feet. Now they're going miles in a day, right? So a very different type of war using this new tank technology, as I mentioned, to allow them to do that, right? They can just, France had built this, you know, sort of famous Maginot line that was supposed to keep people out. Um, and the tanks just went right through that, right? Just bowled over these concrete uh, blockades that were supposed to stop them. Uh, by June 5th, German forces had attacked France and taken control of Paris, sort of uh, running through the uh, French defense. They took over the French government, uh, creating a new French regime known as Vichy France. Uh, there remained sort of French resistance fighters all throughout the war. Uh, Charles de Gaulle would sort of uh, come out of that French resistance movement as the new president after the war, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, during this time, right, Hitler was also continuing to imprison, torture, and kill millions of Jews, Roma, and other people he claimed were unfit uh, to live in society. He sort of was taking ideas from social Darwinism, eugenics, and other early 20th century scientific developments, right? We talked about those um, with the progressive movement, as well as in the Roaring Twenties, right? Hitler was very much paying attention to those ideas coming out of American scientific institutions and around the world as well. Uh, the sort of obviously crank, awful... Uh, Science, quote unquote, science used for horrible purposes. Uh, the mass killings of Jewish people began in concentration camps in 1940, and by 1942, uh, they had already been building death camps in several places, uh, right, for this quote unquote final solution to try to eradicate all Jewish people in the world. This horrible, horrible thing. People knew about these mass killings um, when they were starting, but few people sort of acted on that information. Right, not much was done to try to help these people. Jewish people were trying to escape Germany all the time, trying to escape Europe all the time. Um, the U.S. at one point sent back a boat full of Jewish refugees seeking asylum. They sent that boat back to Germany. That boat was called the MS St. Louis. 
Uh, most of the ship's 937 passengers were Jewish people trying to escape Nazi Germany. Uh, though sort of the war had officially not broken out yet, the groundwork for that sort of death camp was already being laid. Uh, They're trying to escape. And so, and people knew the danger that these people faced, uh, but they were turned down by U.S. immigration authorities, first by Cuba, then by the United States, and then by Canada. Uh, for many on the St. Louis, that rejection was a literal death sentence, right? They had to go back to Europe uh, and face life in concentration camp. Just a horrible, horrible uh, time. By 1940, right, there were some very early Nazi victories. First France, Denmark, all those places. And so by 1940, Germany had control of most of Europe, uh, along with Italy, right? Uh, in the summer and fall of 1940, Germans began bombing Britain, this is known as the Battle of Britain, right? Germany used their foothold in France to send uh, their planes over to sort of bomb London and the rest of Britain as well, trying to destroy their military and manufacturing centers. This is sort of Hitler's attempt to break Britain's air superiority. Britain had a very strong air force uh, to build that up over time, and Germany wanted to crush it, seeing as his sort of last point of resistance to controlling Europe. While the attack sort of greatly harmed Great Britain uh, and destroyed, killed lots of people, destroyed lots of stuff, it ultimately, in the end, failed. It was not able to bring down German air superior, sorry, British air superiority. The Battle of Britain uh, saw the development of those famous "Keep Calm and Carry On" posters that we all know. Those uh, surprisingly were not actually very popular at the time at all. Uh, the entire campaign was scrapped after just about four weeks. People did not like those signs, and they were sort of. Uh, those old posters were discovered decades later and became sort of a popular ad campaign uh, in today's time. At the, at, the, at the time that they were developed, were not popular. So even uh, through, the 19, through 1940, the U.S. continued to remain neutral. Uh, technically, uh, they also continued to sell more and more arms to Britain, but, you know, refraining from keeping their from putting their troops and their army into the war effort. Britain had newly elected a new prime minister, Winston Churchill, who was trying really, really hard to get FDR to join the war, right? Seeing the U.S. as sort of one of their last hopes. American Jewish people continued to advocate for entering the war against Germany, right? Saying that they are killing our people, we need to help them. In 1940, FDR enacted the first peacetime draft in United history, United States history, right? The first time People have been drafted when there wasn't a war already happening. Uh, he also began referring to the U.S. as a quote-unquote arsenal for democracy, arsenal of democracy. You know, this idea that the U.S. will be the one supplying weapons to help save democracy around the world. Continuing, right, this idea taken from, you know, the Spanish-American War and even before, the U.S. had a role as sort of this police keeper, this peacekeeper around the world. Uh, but... People like Charles Lindbergh and other fascists and other groups like the American First Committee fought back against this, right, saying the U.S. should remain out of this, uh, if not support Germany. By 1940, FDR won his third presidential election, right, the first time that had a president ever run uh, for a third run and won uh, for a third presidential seat, uh, continued his what he called his aid short of war policy, right, saying we'll help the U.K., 
uh, but we're not going to actually join them. He also began sort of talking about uh, a world based on what he called the four freedoms, right? Sort of doing this sort of almost Wilsonian thing of trying to describe the war in humanitarian terms. Uh, His four freedoms were freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear, right? If you've seen those Norman Rockwell paintings, they're very famous descriptions of each of those four freedoms. comes from FDR. FDR argued that Americans had to take a stand to create a world that upheld those freedoms and sort of, you know, wanting the war to be fought on ideological grounds rather than sort of, you know, economic, uh, political, or, you know, expansionist grounds, right? Sort of that same thing with Wilson trying to describe World War I as a fight, you know, for freedom. So FDR clearly wanting to join the war, uh, but not sort of convinced he can get the support of the public yet. So he continues a sort of aid sort of war policy in 1941, March 1941. Congress passed the Land-Lease Act, which allowed FDR to give weapons to countries fighting Germany or Japan. Japan sort of had also been teasing an alliance with Germany and Italy, hoping to get out of its stalemate with China, right? Trying to get some extra support there. Hitler sort of had looked to conquer the Soviet Union and wanted a partner in the Pacific, saw the Soviet Union as sort of uh, the other front on this war that he had to fight. Uh, So they sort of started to join forces, had an alliance. In August 1941, FDR uh, met with Churchill in secret, in a secret conference, and came up with what was called the Atlantic Charter. Uh, this stated that the war was one of national self-determination and not conquest, right? So that the UK, Britain, and you know, the UK, what was left of France, uh, the US would not be fighting to conquer Germany, uh, but to sort of end fascism. And this was secret, though, however, right? They hadn't, uh, the US hadn't fully entered the war yet. Uh, in the fall of 1941, German U-boats, those U-boats are back from World War I, this time better. German U-boats began sinking U.S. Uh, Navy ships. FDR ordered the Navy to fire back. This sort of marks uh, the undeclared shooting war between Germany and Italy. The U.S. is not technically in a state of war yet, but they are shooting at German ships, right? So those technicalities can be ridiculous at some point. So the U.S. does eventually enter the war. Uh, in the Pacific, Japan had occupied what was known as French Indochina, quote unquote. Today, we know them as as Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. Uh, as a result of this, the U.S. cut off trade with Japan. Uh, many Japanese leaders thought that the U.S. had to be expelled from Asia entirely, right? That they wouldn't be able to have control of that region until the U.S. was gone. If you remember, the U.S. still, the Philippines were a territory of the U.S. and all Philippine citizens were citizens of the United States at this point. Uh, so in September 1941, the Japanese high command decided to attack the U.S. fleet in the Pacific. Right, The U.S. had you know Atlantic and Pacific fleets. And so uh, taking out that uh, plan on December 7th, 1941, early in the morning, Japanese bombers attacked Pearl Harbor, killing 2,400, uh, 2,403 Americans and sinking or damaging eight battleships and a tremendously uh, damaging uh, attack on the U.S. Navy. Uh, They also, at the same time, launched offensives against U.S. positions in the Philippines, Guam, Midway Islands, Hong Kong, and Malaysia, right? So fully trying to get the U.S. out of Asia. There were... That attack on Pearl Harbor would have completely destroyed the U.S. Navy in the Pacific, except for the fact that a few aircraft carriers happened to be out of Pearl Harbor at that point. 
uh, allowing some of the fleet to survive. After this attack, FDR asked Congress for an official declaration of war, and on December 8th, the day after Pearl Harbor, he received that. So the U.S. officially entered the war on December 8th, 1941. Just because the U.S. entered didn't mean that things sort of turned their way right away. On mid-19, in mid-1942, Japan controlled much of Asia, Germany and Italy controlled much of Europe and North Africa. Things did not look good for Britain and the U.S. and its allies in the Soviet Union. There had also begun an invasion of the Soviet Union, and its forces were nearing Moscow. The Holocaust was worsening. Uh, Germany was building death camps, uh, which were sort of uh, different than concentration camps in that they were people were sent there just to die rather than to work. Uh, the British, the U.S., and the Soviet Union sort of entered a grand alliance as a result of this, and these their combined forces would eventually win World War II sort of to spoil everything here. This isn't a Wolfenstein game. Things don't happen that way. Uh, so as part of this a grand alliance, the UK and the US sent the Soviet Union $11 billion in supplies, right, trying to help them fight this war against Germany. Uh, the first focus of the grand alliance was on defeating Germany. So this big strategic choice was to focus on Germany first rather than Japan or Italy. The Soviet unions uh, were the only ones fighting Germany in Europe uh, when the alliance began, right? The UK didn't have the ability to sort of attack uh, outside of the UK yet. Uh, they needed American support before that would happen. Uh, along with China, the US, the UK, and the USSR saw themselves as the quote-unquote four policemen, right? The people uh, keeping fascism out of the world. Stalin would not agree to the Atlantic Charter, this idea that it was about national self-determination, uh, but FDR wanted to keep him as an ally, so they didn't push it. Um, but the seeds of the sort of the Cold War were being sown here, right? This idea that Soviet Union would potentially maybe keep the territory that it won if it won any. You see the seeds of the Cold War there. So the Pacific Theater, we'll look at that first, despite the first uh, fighting happening in Europe. Uh, so the U.S. had a larger military presence in the Pacific than it did in Europe as a result of its major expansions uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, so the U.S. fought its first battles in the Pacific region, actually, uh, suffered many, many defeats in the first month. Uh, it was not prepared or used to sort of fighting and sort of the very much slowed sort of any U.S. advances, right, in May 1942, sort of suffered a lot of defeats there. Uh, but just sort of as a result of that, uh, Japan tried to deliver, deliver a knockout punch against U.S. forces at the Battle of Midway, uh, but they suffered a decisive defeat, and sort of that was sort of the turning point. Uh, from then on, U.S. forces would continue to gain ground, and Japan would continue to lose ground from them on. That didn't mean the fighting was easy, right? The fighting was very, very, very hard uh, in the Pacific. Basically, they had to go from you know island to island doing this. Uh, drag out fight against Japan. Uh, in the European theater, uh, the Axis powers sort of reached the Axis being Italy, Germany, and Japan. The Axis reached the height of their powers expansion in 1942. Uh, they were sinking hundreds of boats in the Atlantic. German troops had German troops had moved into Egypt uh, on September 13th, 1942. German took, troops took Stalingrad. But then in October, uh, things started to change. British forces pushed the Germans back out of Egypt, and American forces uh, landed in Africa and began pushing the Germans back out of Tunisia. Uh, and 
through those combined efforts, the U.S. and U.K. forces began to push the Germans out of Africa. When that makes 1943 sort of a turning point of the war. Uh, 1943, the Allies being, you know, U.K., U.S., and the USSR and China began to push the Axis back. Uh, they went up from Africa through Italy and Sicily, uh, taking it rather quickly in 1943. Uh, and the Asian uh, Pacific Front, at the Battle of Guadalcanal, the U.S. launched and won its first offensive in the Pacific, right? So not just fighting from a defensive position, but actually pushing forward. Uh, they began what's known as island hopping toward Japan, right? So going to each little island on the way there, taking one in turn. Uh, by May 1943, Axis powers had been defeated in Africa. Africa. Um, as a result of this, sort of the three FDR, Churchill, and Stalin begin meeting to sort of start to begin to plan the end of the war, potentially. The first of those meetings was the Tehran Conference in November 1943. Uh, they met for the first time in Tehran, Iran. Uh, they discussed how to open up a second front in Europe. That was Stalin's big goal, right? All the fighting in Europe was basically... Uh, on in his country, millions and millions and millions of Soviets were dying, and he wanted a second front, thinking it was the only way to sort of split Hitler's forces, uh, lessening the stress on the USSR. Uh, they agreed to a mid-1944 date on this, and as a result of that agreement, Stalin also agreed to open a second front against Japan after Germany was defeated, right? So also to attack Japan from two sides. Uh, by 1944, uh, you sort of start to see victory in view for the Allies. On June 6, 1944, American, British, and Canadian troops landed on several beaches in Normandy, France, establishing a landing zone starting a second front. This is known as D-Day. Soon, about a million Allied forces entered France, uh, taking back Paris on August 25th. And then by September 5th, more than 2 million Allied troops were in Europe. Uh, this was an, just an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly successful landing, right? It was not guaranteed to be a success, uh, but sort of one of the most famous and most effective military operations in world history. Just getting all these people over in relative secret was a huge undertaking and something Germany was not prepared to deal with. Uh, by September 13th, uh, Allied forces had entered Germany as German forces st started to crumble. Uh, I don't go too much into the reasons for why Germany sort of fell apart seemingly very quickly. Largely, it was once again because they were running out of supplies. Fighting this two-front war really drained them. Uh, they just didn't have enough food for their soldiers. Uh, and Hitler was also an insane person, uh, sort of losing control of everything. Uh, the Soviet Army, too, also was moving west, right, pushing back the Germans, defeating them in the Balt Baltic, the Balkans, Hungary, and Prussia. Germany, there was, you know, devastating winters in 1943, 1944, which really hurt the Soviets, but hurt the Germans more. Uh, by December 15th, U.S. forces in the Pacific had destroyed most of Japan's sea power, right, really turning the screws there. And by 1944, the end of 1944, victory was largely assured for both sides. Uh, but millions of people would still die before the war was over, right? The end of the war still uh, was being fought, and millions of people would still die, even if it seemed like it was largely decided. 
Uh, Germany launched a sort of last gasp, last ditch effort on December 16th, 1944 at the Battle of the Bulge. That bulge comes from the push German uh, troops tried to make through uh, the Allied lines, but they were not able to break those lines. uh, And that push failed. uh, And this really allowed the Soviets to make progress towards Berlin, uh, marking sort of putting the final nail in the coffin of the, the Nazi regime. Despite these victories, Allied relations were growing strained. Uh, In February 1945, the leaders once again met in the town of Yalta in Crimea uh, to discuss how to end the war. Stalin wanted this sort of defensive buffer between the USSR and and Western Europe, right? He's saying, look, World War I, we lost millions of people in that war. World War II, we're losing millions of people in this war. We, like, can't trust you guys. We need this defensive buffer of territories we control between Western Europe and the USSR. For Stalin, that meant annexing Poland, uh, which the UK and the US wanted to be independent, right? The sort of national determination, Atlantic Charter stuff. They also just didn't want the USSR getting more territory. The Yalta Agreement, coming out of the Yalta Conference, mostly held to Stalin's ideas, allowing for a pro-Soviet presence in Poland and much of Eastern Europe. Uh, Sort of later Cold War critics would say that FDR sold out to Stalin, right? Saying he let this communist sort of win. Uh, In 1945, the war ends in Europe. Uh, The British and U.S. firebombed Dresden, Germany, killing 30,000 civilians and destroying the town, saying that it was, you know, a military operation, but sort of 30,000 civilians were killed in this. Uh, That attack is much of the inspiration for the famous book Slaughterhouse-Five. In April 24th, Soviets entered Berlin. On April 30th, Hitler committed suicide. And on May 8th, German forces surrendered. This is known as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, uh, celebrated in Europe. Uh, The war, however, was still going on in Japan. Um, So for the last time that the UK, Soviet, and US leaders would meet during the war, they met at the Potsdam Conference. Uh, Harry Truman was now the president after FDR had died. FDR had won a fourth term, but then died soon thereafter. Uh, Churchill had lost an election midway through the conference, right? People saw him as a wartime leader, not as a peacetime leader. And so he lost. So it was new people at the these meetings. Uh, Stalin demanded that Germany be forced to pay $20 billion in reparations and never be allowed to wage war again. Uh, the UK and the US resisted this, not wanting to repeat the Treaty of Versailles, right? They saw the Treaty of Versailles as sort of a big reason why World War II had happened in the first place. Eventually, at the Potsdam Conference, they would come to a compromise that split Germany and Berlin into four occupation zones, uh, which would make it become a hotbed of the Cold War, which we will talk about in a few weeks. Uh, so the war ends in Japan on August 6, 1945. The Enola Gay dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, destroying the city and killing upwards of 160,000 people. On August 9th, a second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, killing between 60,000 and 80,000 people. These horrible, horrible things, right? Atomic bomb recently been in the news with the Oppenheimer movie. Um, and opinions have changed on the usage of the bomb. I, it was just—it was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing, right? It killed hundreds of thousands of innocent people and destroyed the lives of millions more. Horrible, horrible thing. 
uh, the Japanese government after the John Bapa Nagasaki uh, surrendered on the condition that the emperor be allowed to keep his throne, uh, even if only in a sort of ceremonial role. Uh, this is the only time nuclear weapon has been used on another country. Um, more than 60 million people died during World War II. Over 38 million of them were civilians. So just horrible, horrible things. Um, so con- some conclusions here. World War II was the bloodiest war the war ha- world has ever seen. It killed more civilians than it did combatants. Uh, and the introduction of nuclear war, of nuclear weapons, sort of changed the world forever. The Holocaust, too, uh, changed people's understandings of morality and the horrors that people would commit. Um, next week, we'll talk more about the war in the United States. Um, but that is it for today, and have a great rest of your day.